the bubonic plague, which was uh, around 1348, came out of Asia, spread into Italy, decimated Italy, and this is, all sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, a plague coming from China and decimating Italy. It was characterized by uh, a very contagious kind of disease that would attack the lungs, and there was fever, and there was no treatment. And so again, here we are all these hundreds of years later, and we have something coming from Asia, wiping out Italy almost, hopefully that won't happen, and uh, it's attacking the lungs, there is no treatment, etc. So there are lots of parallels here. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Hi, I'm Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now and host of this Code Red podcast. As we conduct this interview, the coronavirus pandemic continues to rage around the world. With hundreds of millions of people confined to their homes, the number one topic of news reports and conversations is the virus. What toll is it taking? How should we fight it? Can we fight it? To help us understand the challenge we face, we are fortunate to have with us Dr. Stephen Berger. Stephen is a medical doctor and an expert on infectious diseases. Stephen helped found Gideon, the Global Infectious Diseases and Epidemiology Network, and he is Director of Tropical Diseases and Clinical Microbiology at Tel Aviv Medical Center. Stephen served in the United States Navy. He is board certified in both infectious diseases and clinical microbiology. He has authored 424 e-books, 120,000 pages on geographic medicine, and 180 standard books and professional papers. We are honored to have Dr. Stephen Berger as our guest today. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Why don't we, uh, you, you are currently, if I'm correct, you are currently quarantined in Israel because of the virus. This is correct, that, yeah. That is correct. And I would appreciate if you could just give us an overview of how the state of Israel has reacted to the virus? What is it doing? And whatever other insights that you can give us a brief overview, that would be great. Well, there, there's a lot of good news and there's a lot of bad news as there is in your country and many other parts of the world. And what has been the bad news for us for many years is, I think, in a way, turned into the good news. The bad news is that we're a small country and we're defending ourselves, and you hear this frequently. But the good news in a way is we're a small country and therefore we can get a hold of things. We can immediately uh, take essentially the entire population and uh, not regiment them, but educate them quickly, uh, uh, organize equipment. Uh, people here are very enthusiastic. They're hard workers. Uh, they're very devoted to their country. And uh, so we, we were able to get onto it pretty quickly. Uh, I think a lot of the problem in other countries is the delay more than anything else. The realization that this is a big problem. And in, in some countries, it's, uh, it's an existential problem. It's a fatal problem. So in a way, we were, we were lucky to be small. We, we got onto this 
Uh, some of the bad news is that we are suffering. We're suffering like everybody else, uh, not as much as your country right now, but we do have a problem. Uh, we've, we've had uh, some 5,500 cases in the country as of, uh, as of today and, and 21 uh, deaths. And if you look at those numbers, it's, it's, we're sort of in, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the number of cases where, like Ireland, I'm saying in terms of the number of cases per million population, which is a nice way to look at these things. Mm-hmm. We're like Ireland, which is an high country, and we're like Iran, which is an high country. Strange enough, Iran has the same number of countries essentially as Israel does per million population. But uh, having said that, we've had 21 deaths, and Iran has had 3,036 deaths. So you see what the problem was. So the, it, one of the problems in my profession is there's so many numbers, and you're getting bombarded by this as well. Uh, you get this in TV all day. The death rates and the number of people in hospitals and, and how many machines do you have? There's, there's this endless stream of numbers, which, of course, change every day. And that's where we are today. So can you help us in the broader picture um, and explain to us in relationship to other diseases that have spread around the world. You wrote a blog post recently which asked the question, uh, is this another plague? Um, What is the size of this challenge? And if you have any idea of how we know we're making progress, um, is this going to simply run its course? Um, is, there, is there things that we can do that we're not doing to, um, to meet this challenge? It's an interesting question. It, I, I wrote that blog about the plague because that's come up. People say we're at the, at the edge of another Black Death plague. You hear these frightening terms, the Black Death and there have been plagues in the past, uh, some interesting ones. The one that people usually re- refer to is the bubonic plague, or, or presumed bubonic plague. Nobody's really proven it. But the bubonic plague, which was uh, around 1348, came out of Asia, spread into Italy, decimated Italy. And this is, all sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, a plague coming from China and decimating Italy. It was characterized by uh, a very contagious kind of disease that would attack the lungs, and there was fever, and there was no treatment. And so again, here we are all these hundreds of years later, and we have something coming from Asia, wiping out Italy almost, hopefully that won't happen, and uh, it's attacking the lungs, there is no treatment, etc. So there are lots of parallels here. Uh, I, and, and there was a plague before that in the 6th century AD, which came into uh, Constantinople, uh, it, it, which we, part of what is now Turkey, spread westward into Europe. It was maybe the same disease. And each one of these diseases wiped out upwards of 50% of all human beings in, in, in Europe. 50%, think of that. And here we're, we're talking now of, uh, you know, hopefully we won't get anywhere near that, but uh, many millions and millions died. So I don't think we're going to get to that one. But these two plagues teach us other things about history. Uh, after the uh, first plague, the one in Constantinople, uh, there was uh, the, the rise of Islam in uh, Arabia, which came into Europe and, of course, uh, spread rapidly into Europe and other parts of the world because they weren't affected by the plague, so it was very easy for them. And there are reasons why it didn't happen. It's another topic, perhaps. 
And after the second plague, the better known Black Death of the 14th century, uh, we had the Renaissance, which is a wonderful thing, right? And the Renaissance was based on the, uh, the destruction of civilization, the disappointment with the church, and lots of other things going on, which eventually led to free thought and introspection and art and all that good stuff, which gave us the Renaissance. So the question that I'm asked, and I really can't answer, is what's going to come out of this one? Are we going to have a total uh, re- re- readjustment of civilization of some sort? I just don't know. I don't know what's going to come out of it. We're not going to go back to where we were uh, you know, three months ago, that's for sure. Um, I, uh, one of the, the, the differences, of course, uh, between these plagues was that in, in the old days when these plagues would occur, uh, diseases moved slowly in a sense. They came on boats and they came with armies that marched by foot, you know, there were no uh, vehicles or whatever. So they would, they would die out in the, in the process. They couldn't get that far. But now we have the airplane. And the airplane, again, is good news and bad news. You know, we love the airplane, but it's it, the disease you, you read about in Africa or in China, what have you, yesterday is now on your doorstep today because of the airplane. And, and that's another factor. Uh, I just don't know. Just don't know. In the 20th century, there were at least um, two um, major uh, infectious diseases that affected <laughs> World. One was the Spanish flu. The other mm-hmm. one was the Asian flu in the 1950s. Are there lessons that we are learning or should have learned from how society dealt with those? Uh, I'm going to use the word plague, but not in its formal term, plagues in our society. Yeah, yeah, there are quite a few. And here again, by the way, uh, the the uh, the influenza, that particular pandemic, and all of the others, for the most part, with some rare exceptions, came from Asia, spread westward. And there's probably a reason for that, which we can get into. It says, what 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 is this business of coming from China and getting into our quote, I say quote quote our our country? Uh, the Spanish flu came at a time that people didn't know what a virus was. Uh, that came you know, a couple of decades later. Certainly there was no vaccine. There was no treatment. So, uh, again, the good news, I keep saying good news, bad news, but the good news in influenza, at least, is we, we were able to develop vaccines and learn how to develop vaccines. And as we speak, uh, a lot of very exciting stuff is going on, as you've been seeing on television, developing a, a vaccine, hopefully, for this particular disease. Um uh, there was a Hong Kong flu, and there was a Singapore flu, and again, you're listening to those words, Hong Kong, Singapore, China. So there are reasons that these things do come out of Asia. If I can digress for a second, uh, people don't realize that influenza outbreaks, which we get every year, not as bad as this one, in the sense that not as many people perhaps dying in percent. Millions of people may die, but it's not a large percent of cases. These, these influenza outbreaks also start in animals in the Far East. And that should sound familiar to people that are following the COVID, the current disease. Remember, they said there was a, an animal market in Wuhan in, in China where people were eating and selling or what have you, exotic animals. Well, influenza outbreaks, a lot of people are not uh, aware of it. Influenza outbreaks almost always start because of an interaction of pigs and ducks, of all things, in uh, China or countries around China. And we can get into that if we had another half hour. And there's a mixture and a new virus comes out, which has never existed before. Again, with this, this deja vu, we're having the same thing. So one of the lessons I think that's going to come out of this is get 
into China when it's all done in a very strong way and say, look, guys, no more of this exotic animal and the filthy uh, uh, markets where everything's mixed up and human uh, waste and pig waste and duck waste, because that's what's involved. Uh, suddenly making a virus we never saw before. We should learn that lesson from this. Uh, and that's a very important lesson. I think China, by the way, I've heard that China is uh, already, as far as they're concerned, it's over. You know, they've had very few local cases. So uh, China is already going after some of the markets, at least in that area. Um, that's, that's an important lesson. In the West, uh, there is a big push, United Kingdom, United States, uh, Italy, late in the game, and other Western countries have based their policies of fighting the virus um, on social distancing of people staying away from each other, six feet away, etc. Is that um, something that should be playing the huge role that it's playing, meaning the instruction of staying away from people so that the virus won't spread? Or are there other things that we should be doing as societies to help stem the spread of this? Uh, a very interesting question. I think it, it, it's worth doing, and, and now I'm reading what you're reading. I have no good data. There have been some papers looking at in, in statistical terms the value of social distancing, but I'm personally not, not involved in those. But uh, the nice thing about social distancing, it doesn't cost money, and you don't have to uh, get a, a grant and uh, do research in the sense of developing a vaccine. And by the way, why not? If it works, it works. I, I, what I do now as, a, as an infection disease specialist is that uh, these viruses, there's no doubt they're on the hands of people. And not only on the hands of people, but they're in places which we don't think of. They're on doorknobs. They're on the keys of your computer. Uh, they're on the banister of your stairs as you're going up and down. And there was a study done when I was uh, a bit younger where someone went into the New York City uh, uh, subway system and cultured, uh, took uh, bacteriologic culture specimens of those handles that you hold on to as the subway is going through uh, the tunnels. He took that before and after rush hour. That's what he did. And uh, he found that after rush hour, unbelievable, an unbelievable uh, variety of very interesting, let's say, bacteria, parasites, viruses were on those handles. There have been lots of studies of money, uh, in particular paper money. Paper money carries just about everything. Don't even think. And I wouldn't tell you don't use money. That's a little premature, but you should be washing your hands perhaps a bit more after I told you that, especially if you're very wealthy. Uh, credit cards, perhaps, also. I haven't seen anybody look at credit cards, by the way. So, so it, 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 social distancing is not just the social part of it, you know, touching elbows and staying away from each other, which is certainly good, but also the things that we handle in our day-to-day -day life. That's also part of social distancing, I, I think. Uh, we just had a, uh, we had a pizza delivered here, a fellow who didn't want to come near me because I'm obviously threatening on, on uh, these days. Left a pizza near my door, and I shouted out the credit card number, and he ran away. But uh, I was thinking about the box that the pizza came in. The, the pizza is probably okay. It's hot. But how about the box? And how about the, uh, the receipt that he left with the pizza? You know, who was handling that? Now I'm touching it. There's no end to it. So, so I think it, it, it's a good thing to do. I don't know what it will do to society as a whole. I'm not a sociologist, but it's, it's interesting to watch. 
Stephen, um, as the virus makes its way through society by infecting people, um, do people build up an immunity and does the virus become less threatening to people's lives as it spreads through society? Um, for, the, for the patient himself, probably, uh, this, you've heard the word coronavirus. The, the one that's attacking uh, us uh, uh, this time is, is one of seven human, human coronaviruses. There, there are, by the way, chicken coronaviruses and rabbit coronaviruses, lots of things out there you really don't want to know about. But, but it's, it's at least for six out of the seven until this one, the answer is yes. Uh, you, you, you develop something called antibody. Your blood makes a protein which keeps you from getting it again and protects the individual person. If, if a sufficient part of the uh, population has that antibody, the, the, uh, the uh, epidemic can't sustain itself. And uh, you see uh, numbers uh, batted around of 60% or so. That is a 60% have gotten the virus and survived, uh, or died, whatever, but 60% have gone through it and they have antibody. Uh, or if you give a vaccine, which has the same purpose, uh, the, the epidemic will die. So it's not only good for the person himself, if the, if the antibody is protective, nobody's proven that it's protective. In other words, not only do you have it, but it will keep you from getting the disease. Uh, and it's a high percentage, certainly good. I, I would just add, by the way, the antibodies don't always protect you. That's why there, there are questions like this. For example, you've heard of syphilis and gonorrhea and malaria. You know those? Uh, in those diseases, you have lots of antibody, but you can get the disease again. You can get it just as many times as you're exposed. So the antibody is not what we call a protective antibody. It's a marker that you had the disease, but it doesn't help you in any way. Hopefully, the, this particular coronavirus is not one of those. You get the antibody and it works, and the way other viruses, as they say, like this work, it, it, it should be good. Does that answer your question, Alan? Yeah, yeah. There is a, um, an ongoing... It's not really a controversy at this point, but there is this tension between free societies giving up their freedoms um, to fight this particular disease at this moment in time. I don't think we've ever had a situation here in the United States and in other European countries where people have been asked um, and actually ordered not to uh, do what they normally do, like walk out in the street or congregate or play basketball on the street, that type of stuff, and, and open their businesses. And, uh, you know, restaurant owners uh, shuttered. Um, and you have this uh, tension between our normal freedoms um, being assaulted in a sense, as well as our bodies being assaulted by this uh, virus. Two countries yeah. um, that I have seen get some publicity recently that has, in a sense, refused to go down the path of what we are now calling a lockdown of the societies are South Korea and Sweden. Do you have any opinion? Do you have any particular knowledge of whether their strategies of 
I guess it's homing in on those who are infected and not engaging a large part of the society outside of testing. Mm-hmm. No, I have no. It's more an ethical. I, I have I have opinions, emotional opinions, perhaps, but no 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 great knowledge of it. Sweden is interesting. Sweden and Scandinavia in general, by the way, they've offset that practice with with amazingly good case finding. And South Korea, even better. You've seen this on TV where you can walk down the street, get a test and then continue walking to work. And and if your your case finding is is amazingly good, that is, you're identifying everybody who's got the disease or hasn't got the disease, you have a good control your ethics aside and what you're locking people in houses or whatever you assign. So that gives them a, a real edge. Uh, in Scandinavia, if you look at the data, you find that they have a very large numbers of cases until now, uh, but uh, very little death, which, which among other things, tells you that they're finding all the cases. They're finding the people who are not that sick or not at all sick. Uh, that's, that's part of the, the numbers game, if you will, of what's going on. If you, if you don't include people that get the virus and don't get sick, you're really not looking at the true picture. So I suspect that uh, again, Finland, Denmark, and Norway, and Sweden are, are at least have an edge in that respect, that they're finding the cases. Uh, free, as far as individual freedoms, I, I'm, a, I'm a victim, as you are, I suspect, uh, sitting, sitting there. Uh, right now, and uh, I, I, it's annoying, you know, but I, I try to look for the common good, and uh, this is it. I, you know, when you you started off by giving us good news and bad news, well, one of the things that I see as both good news and bad news is the ubiquitous internet <laughs> or social media, which is a part of all our lives, whether we have a virus or we don't have a virus. And, uh, you know, on the good news part, there is a lot of very, very valuable information that people are getting um, uh, instantaneously because of the Internet. On the bad news part, it appears to me, and I'd like to have your opinion on this, uh, it appears to me that we're also getting a lot of... uh, bad news or or uh, news that is slanted in a way that doesn't reflect reality. What is the role of social media and the internet in this virus? Do you have any opinion on that? <laughs> no. No, I actually don't. I, I suspect we're from similar generations and I am overwhelmed even before this. I'm, I am overwhelmed by the internet, so I'm not the person to ask. <laughs> I, I, I've already, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a victim, as, as you are, and uh, I'm a victim of fake news, you know, about these diseases and what have fake news, slanted news. I mentioned before some of the numbers, the way things are reported will change your, uh, your, uh, the way you look at a given country, perhaps. Uh, there, was, there was something very early in the outbreak, uh, this is a personal uh, sorry, but very early in the outbreak, where we saw when it was in China for the most part, and, and they said that uh, about three and a half percent of people in China were dying of the disease. That is, three and a half percent of the cases were fatal. And that was a big mistake. And that carried on, it's probably carrying on in a great deal of the media even so today. We're better or worse than that three and a half percent, if you remember the number. And that number was false. Uh, that, that's something I personally looked into. I'm saying it's false because it wasn't three and a half percent of the patients. It was three and a half percent of the patients who did get to a hospital and go to a doctor and get sick. 
It wasn't two and a half percent of the people who were out in the community sick. And in those days, they couldn't check for what I mentioned before, antibodies. They couldn't check to see how about somebody who feels fine. Maybe he went through it as well, you see. So when you start getting lots of more people who are not sick, that three and a half percent goes down. It's not three and a half percent of the people with the disease, three and a half percent of the people, if I'm, I hope I'm not speaking too rapidly. And uh, so, but the social media was slamming us. It was giving me that number, and I actually wrote something about that as well. I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm a victim of social media. I think just as much. I might deny it as a professional, but I think I'm a victim just as much as everybody else. In the United States, we have the unique situation where several states actually put up um, notices that they don't want people from New York coming or legally actually banning people from New York coming to visit them. Uh, and uh, do you subscribe uh, to the idea that actually reducing travel uh, does in fact or could in fact have a positive impact in stopping the spread of this disease? Yes, I do. I, I, again, I'm sorry for all the personal stuff. My daughter was in New York two weeks ago, and uh, she managed to, quote, get out. She was one of the few people, I think, on that day that got out. Came back, and it was immediately put into quarantine. Uh, and uh, I didn't get to see my daughter, who came back to, you know, until now. And now that she's gotten out of quarantine, she's in quarantine because everybody's in quarantine. So... That's a dilemma for her. Uh, I, I think it's it's good if it's effective in finding cases. Something I mentioned uh, a, a few minutes ago. If 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 uh, if you say that someone, let's say, comes from Italy, I, I think there'd be no question. You know that that person. I think most all of us would say, well, let's at least take a look at that guy, do a test, and put him in quarantine. So it's a matter of cost effectiveness, and again, these numbers. If it's a person who's more more than likely to have uh, the disease, well, I think he should be in quarantine. And if if I was the person coming back from Italy, I'd be inconvenienced. I might get angry, but it's, it's certainly good for the society. I think it's a good idea. I want to thank you once again for sharing your professional insights. Um, and uh, I. Before I sign off, I want to ask you, is there anything else that you would like to share with our audience? Is there light at the end of this tunnel? Yeah, yes, I think there is. Uh, I, I think uh, things we haven't touched on, the treatment and vaccine, I have no doubt there'll be a vaccine, but the vaccine will take time, and time is something we don't have much of. Time means dead, dead people, you know, the way we're living right now. So hopefully the, this vaccine will have many exceptions when compared to the usual vaccine that it can be rushed along, you know, scientifically, but at least some of the bureaucracy involved in getting a vaccine, getting it tested, getting it to market, whatever, can be shortened. I think a vaccine will be very good for us. And there are some drugs. You've probably heard of hydroxychloroquine. Uh, I, I use a great deal of hydroxychloroquine in my uh, practice in the tropical uh, disease types. It's good for malaria. It's not the treatment of choice for malaria. But it works fine. And I, I've had many people taking that drug for other reasons, like arthritis. And when they said, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, South America and I happen to be taking hydroxychloroquine, I said, well, you don't need malaria pills because that one is a malaria pill. 
so there's a lot of experience with it. We know it. It's it's not like a shot in the dark or an unknown drug that may catch up with us. I, 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 there's no, there are no good data in the scientific sense to prove that it works, but there's enough uh, uh, preliminary data or anecdote or whatever they're going to call it, which seem to show that it works. And it, it's from very good people. It's not some guy who said, I'm going to give it to 10 people and see what happens. These are very good scientists. So I have hope, I have great hope in hydroxychloroquine specifically. There's a drug called remdesivir, which is another one of, uh, it works for another one of those plagues we didn't get to talk about. It's called Ebola. You all remember that one. Uh, Ebola, by the way, was a big outbreak just finished. I don't know how many people are aware of that. We, we tend to get sidetracked from one epidemic to another. But there was an epidemic finished uh, uh, about three or four weeks ago in uh, Congo, Democratic Congo, with thousands of cases and thousands of deaths. And I suspect most of the listeners didn't even know that. So uh, this new drug, uh, uh, remdesivir, was developed for Ebola. It turns out it may well work for um, for uh, the COVID, the current uh, pandemic. And the, the last one is something called the ribavirin, which is an old drug, works for exotic viruses. It's not something you can buy in the drug. So, but again, it's been out, it's been proven, it's been used. And it works for a lot of, uh, I'd say, exotic, meaning things we don't see in, uh, let's say, New York City, uh, a lot of tropical diseases. And it, and it works well. And it works for viruses that in some ways are similar to the COVID viruses, what we call RNA viruses. This one is an RNA virus. You've heard that term. So I do have hope. I, I think uh, between uh, case five, there are, by the way, tests which work lots of, uh, lots faster. You may have heard this. There are tests where you can walk up to... Um, uh, a booth and, and uh, get a specimen and find out within a few minutes, uh, this is a big revolution of virology, just waiting a few minutes uh, to find out if you've got it or haven't. And having found out, you are immediately, there's no delay, there's no worry, of course, you don't have to come home and come back days later. And uh, th I think this will help us all. So I think that's the good news, rapid testing, case finding, hopefully money to buy the machines, uh, which are lacking in the masks, and, uh, but these things are starting to get out. My country has done, again, very well in getting these things, and the drugs and vaccines. So I am optimistic, yes. Well, very good. Um, and again, Stephen, thank you for sharing with us uh, this information and your insights. And um, I wish you and your family good health. And I look forward sometime in the future, if in fact, you have things that you'd like to share with us, just give me a holler and be glad to have you on again. You've been a great guest. Oh, thanks a lot. You've been a great host. And thanks for giving me something to do while I'm locked in my house with this disease. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We aim to please. Anyway, thank you. Okay, okay. Thank you. Thank you both. Stay in touch. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.